think that the uh, question that I get asked most as a pastor is the question, why? Especially when we have a series like the one we're going through this summer, when times get tough. Uh, when times get tough, we usually ask, why are my times tough? It's been asked me all the time. It, it's, it's asked often when a loved one dies, especially when it's one of our children. Premature deaths it makes no sense to us. It's asked when, when we or a friend is diagno- are, are diagnosed uh, with cancer or with Alzheimer's disease. makes no sense. Why is this happening? Students ask it all the time. When it, when the students, when you've studied so hard and you still fail the exam, why did God let me do that, we say. Um, it's asked, especially in tough economics times, when people lose their jobs. Why did this happen to me? I have, to, I have a family to take care of. Why? Why? Sometimes it, I know that the question why is just an intellectual question. Uh, people say, how can we believe in the kind of God we believe in the, in the Bible, who is all-powerful, can do everything, speaks the word and everything comes into being, and is also perfectly good. How can you put those two things together, powerful and good, and yet all the pain that we have in our world? But for most of us, it's not just an intellectual problem. For most of us, it's, it's, it's a very personal one. And we try to figure out how, how, how are we to live, especially followers of Jesus, how are we to live in those tough times when things are happening that make no sense to us. Though it's not just church people or even religious people in general who ask that question, why? Have you noticed that? People who claim to be completely non-religious when tough times come ask the question why and the very fact that people ask it so intuitively I mean just comes right out of their being so demandingly expecting an answer it makes me think when I talk with folks that you're not as far away from faith as you may think because people just sense that there must be an answer to this that there must be something or, or someone who will make it different and, and help us to understand and, and, and bring about and bring about justice. And you know, of course, it's not just Southern Californians who ask that. You know that, don't you? And it's not just those of us who live in 2010 who ask it either. It's, it's been asked always. Every culture, every time, every people group ask why. And it's asked in the Bible a lot. Yes, people who know God still ask the question. And especially in the Old Testament. Uh, probably the whole book of Job centers around that. Job's so-called friends <laughs> keep saying, why is this happening to you, Job? It's all your fault, obviously. But Job is asking it too. Why is this happening? I have been faithful to God and yet I, I lose my possessions and, and my family and my health. I lose everything. Why? But Job's not the only one. Read the book of Psalms. Uh, David asks it again and again and again and again. And then you get into the prophets and Jeremiah, read chapters 19 and 20. Why, why? I've been following you for 40 years. Why is this happening? And it happens all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, even to those smaller prophets like Habakkuk and, and Malachi, that, where we find at the very end of the Old Testament, why, why is this happening? And then we come to the New Testament. And, and I've, I've taken the time to come to this because in the New Testament, everything changes. Uh, people still ask the question, why? Jesus even asks it on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? 
Uh, and, and, and Paul addresses it in Romans chapter 8. Why is this happening? But in the New Testament, basically, the question changes because something happened in history that people had to come to grips with. The one through whom the whole world was made entered into this world. And as he lived, he faced tough times beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And in fact, in the historic event, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus himself experienced the most excruciating suffering that anyone in the history of the world has ever experienced. He bore the sins of the world upon himself and then defeated that sin through a resurrection. So that in the light of that historic event, Christians have to ask this question in a different way. And the New Testament asks it. The central issue is no longer just why is this happening or why is it happening to me. In the New Testament, the central issue that we have to come to grips is, with is this. Why did suffering happen to Jesus? Who was in every way right in every part of his life, every way good, did everything perfectly and yet experienced suffering because if God himself experiences it, it changes the way we look at it ourselves, right? And we begin to look at it and say, okay, there's no indignity in it if Jesus experienced it. And it wasn't outside of the purpose of God if Jesus experienced it. And his suffering actually accomplished something incredible. So when we're going through it, that changes our perspective. And today we come to the text that addresses that perhaps as clearly as anything in the Bible. Because I don't know if you've noticed as we've gone through First Peter, as he's talking to people in what is now Turkey, that's to whom he first wrote First uh, Peter, uh, they were going through the toughest of times. And yet what First Peter is, is not a, a philosophical intellectual treatise on why is there pain in the world. It really is a very practical statement about how we who follow Jesus are supposed to live when we walk through tough times. And again and again and again, what Peter does is, he says, what we have to do is to look at Jesus. Uh, today I'll just show it to you, I mean, if you have your Bibles. At chapter 3, verse 18, that introduces the whole text, this is, this is what he says. Now listen, Peter says, if, if you have to suffer even for doing what is right, that's verse 17, remember this, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And then he takes it up again in chapter 4, verse 1. Since this is truth, since this happened, since Christ suffered in his body, so you who follow him, arm yourselves for the world that you're going to go into with the very same mind, the same way of, of thinking about this world and the troubles that come as Jesus himself had. Now today, uh, as we come to just that text, and you'll see I'm just going to finish with verse 6 because I want to make sure we have time to look at the cross in our communion time. I want to begin by what I call reviewing the foundation. I want us to understand something. I know we have some folks here who haven't been in the Christian faith long and some are just sort of looking at it. And I want you to understand the foundation of how Christians live. It's one thing that sets our Christian faith, our following Jesus, apart from many other religions. And I tried to find a real, you know, concise, snappy way of putting it. So I did. Um, I called it a word about our faith and its commitment to, to history and truth. Or why does Pastor Greg teach doctrine so much 
And why should I beg him to do it more than he does even if my junior hire is bored by it? You'll always remember that simple, clear point, won't you? Why do we take time instead of just me getting up saying, just live this way, this way, this way, this way? Why do, why do we take so much time to look back and see what we believe about God and about Jesus and, and about this world and then say, on the basis of that, we are supposed to live? I want you to see this in this text. Chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, and then again in chapter 4, verse 7, one word appears. And it's that word. You see how uh, chapter 4, verse 1 begins? Therefore. Therefore, and then in verse 7, the same thing comes up. The end of all things is near. Therefore, live differently. You see, I've told you this so often, I think you can even come right back to me with it. When you find the word therefore in the Bible, you've got to find out what it's... 13 of you, 13 of you uh, got it. It's something that's so amazing. When the Bible tells us how to live... It always begins with this word, therefore. In other words, the way that you and I live is not just some sort of haphazard thing or just some arbitrary rules. It's based upon something that we believe is real. Something happens. Something is true. And what is true and what is real, what we believe, changes then how you and I live. And and so the bottom line is this. The Bible insists that there is a direct relationship between truth and life. A direct relationship between understanding what it is we believe, something that really happened, and the way that we then live. Uh, we see it here in First Peter, but, but you see it all through the New Testament. Just read the book of Romans. Eleven chapters of doctrine it starts with. Taking time to read it? All about who God is and what's happened in our world and what you and I are like and what God has done to change things and what we must do to have our lives. Eleven chapters of this and saying at the end of that, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, in view of this mercy of God that we know about and that's been seen in history, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. Offer your minds to God. Your whole being, your life changes in the light of something that really, really happened and that is ultimately real and true you see that Ephesians is exactly the same do you you remember it as those of you who've been here for a while as we were going through it early in my time here at Lake it started with three chapters of all about something that is real what God has said was his eternal plan God had an eternal plan in this world that he's going to build a family made up of people of every tribe and language and nation a family that's going to bring glory to his name And he has done it, accomplished it. People didn't know how in the Old Testament. But now he's accomplished it through the coming of Jesus. And you and I have the privilege of being a part of it. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, on the basis of what is real, Paul says, I'm sitting here in a prison, so I'm going to urge you to live differently. Live worthy of this calling you have received to come into the family of God. And that's what's happening in in the book of 1 Peter. Something really happened in this world. Therefore, he says, on the basis of what we believe and what is true, your life is to be different. Are you with me here? It teaches us, followers of Jesus, that the way you and I live flows out of something that really happened, that is ultimately real. 
And that's why when I get up here and preach and say, let's start with who God is and what God has done in Christ, it's not just some sort of an intellectual exercise. You and I will not know how to live unless we know what we believe. And especially this, I mean, we could just have a set of rules, but we, shouldn't, we won't know why we should live that way. So, so when we come to instructions in the Bible that tell us to live differently, they're not just God being a spoil sport. Now, when God gives us commands and instructions, it's not God saying, oh, look down there at those people. They're having way too much fun. I'm going to give them some rules that will squelch that. That's not the God you and I believe in. Any, anybody agree with me there? Yeah, I said, Jesus didn't give his life to ruin ours. He gave us life so we can live. So there must be a different reason, a reason for these instructions. And, as one who's been involved in school so much of my life, he didn't give instructions just to give us busy work. Have you ever had a teacher like that? I remember in elementary school I did. I I could tell she'd run out of things for us. See, I was always a rather cynical student. I could tell she'd run out of things for us, so she just gave us, take out a sheet of paper and write 500 times on the sheet of paper, a verb is an action word that tells what the noun is doing. A verb is an... <sighs> I can still remember it. Maybe, maybe I did learn something. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but God doesn't do that. He doesn't say, oh, I've got to keep them out of trouble. I'm going to give them some busy work. No, no, no. He said, I've made them in my image. Uh... I've done this in the world, therefore, on the basis of what is true, this is how you were made to live, and if they're going to live well, we'll live according to the will of God. Just one example of this. I know that there are so many people in our world who hear a a preacher preaching like I am right now and saying, well, Pastor Greg, that sounds an awful lot like absolutes to me. Something is absolutely true and therefore I should absolutely live this way. I don't believe in absolutes. I I don't think that we should have those things striking us from the outside. And then we get into a conversation and the same person who says they, they don't believe in absolutes will say that they don't think that racism is right. Racism is always wrong. And I say, come again? You're telling me that racism is absolutely wrong when when you don't believe in absolutes, come again? Why do, you, why do you think that way? And almost always the answer that comes back is something like this. Well, that's racism being wrong. That's self-evident. Uh, everybody knows that. And you know what I say? Everybody doesn't know that. Haven't you ever read history? Don't you know there have been whole people, groups that have been wiped out? There have been genocides that have happened on the basis of racism And the fact is that many of the people who did it were the most educated of people. Everybody doesn't know this. Jesus followers, we believe that racism is wrong. But we believe it on the basis of something that is absolutely real. We oppose it. Why? Because of what the Bible says is true. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. God created human beings in His own image. That every one of us has a common origin so that if we can go back far enough, we're all related to one another. And every one of us, every one of us is made in the image of God. Every one of us, therefore, is intrinsically valuable. So we're opposed to racism because all people are made in the image of God. And then the New Testament underscores it by Jesus coming and and loving the world and giving His life for whosoever will 
and offering the opportunity to come into His family to all who will believe on Jesus so that we see all people as potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, you see it? This is what following Jesus is about. Therefore, on the basis of what we believe is true and real, our lives are to be different. It teaches us that truth and our lives must connect with one another. That's why we believe that racism is wrong and child abuse is wrong and dishonesty is wrong and that justice is good. It's based upon a therefore. So, with all of that, we come to 1 Peter. Just like the rest of the Bible, when we go through tough times and try to figure out how should we live, we look for a therefore. There's something that is real, something that happened, that will change our perspective. And in verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, uh, Peter says there are things that we avoid. And then in verses 7 through 11, a text that I am going to come back to in the future, the second week in September, based upon the fact that we believe that Jesus is going to finish his work by coming back again, there are things we should be committed to. So we're going to just look at the first of those, and then we're going to go to look at that cross. Based upon the cross of Jesus, there are things that we should avoid in this world. We should avoid what he gets at in verses 1 through 6. The way of life that our culture just sweeps us into. There's a way of life that perhaps the whole culture is saying, this is the way to really live. But we try it and it doesn't work anyway. And as we're looking for life, we're being swept along by the way everybody else is thinking about things, and we engage in it too. And then we come to Jesus, and things are to change. And now we pursue the will of God rather than the way of culture and our own human desires. Look at chapter, verse 2 of chapter 4. As a result of what Jesus has done, we who follow him do not live the rest of our earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather, see, now we live for the will of God. What, and what he's going to go on to talk about is a way of life that the people to whom he was writing were being swept up in. That's what these, some of these tough verses are, verses uh, 3 through 6. You know, I was in this part of the world. First Peter was written uh, to churches in what it's now Turkey, and I was just there recently, you know. And it was interesting in the cities that we would go into and see the ruins of some of the cities. Almost always there would be uh, a theater for entertainment, a sports arena and a temple, kind of the, the central vehicles. Now, in that ancient world, it becomes very clear from the things that exist that the theater was filled, the entertainment was filled with sexual immorality and violence. And, and the uh, sports arenas became increasingly violent too with the gladiators who would be there and, and eventually these times in which people would actually be killed as entertainment... You're bored, let's go see a few people killed as, as, as immigrant people and sometimes people from strange religions. And eventually that became Christians were put out in the middle and wild beasts were let out to, to kill them. And even the temple was the center of prostitution and immorality. Asclepius, uh, Dionysius, Diana, uh, all of those were the centers of those sorts of things. They were the entertainment places. They were the places where people in the midst of a mundane and boring world, 
at the end of the weekend, they, they would go and say, what are we going to do that's really fun? And that's where they were going. And Christians were now saying, we tried that before and it didn't work and they weren't doing it and everybody was making fun of them. They were being abused. They were being scoffed at because they didn't do what everybody thought was the most fun. Look at verse 3 and then you'll see it. You have spent enough time, followers of Jesus, you've spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. In other words, you just live the way the whole world lived. You know that. And then, then it's about as specific a language as possible. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. I'll tell you, these are the kind of words that people who love to preach about sin can just take each one and just milk them. And especially the way I've heard it preached, and I think it, it does a disservice to the Scripture, is it almost just mocks the world. Look how rotten the world out there is with all these kinds of things. But the thing that do you see that's surprising is he said that followers of Jesus had lived that way. All of them, you, all of you, have lived enough, and they've done it a lot. You've spent plenty of time out there doing what they have done. And you, so, so we have to pull back and say, what on earth is he getting at here? And I think we can understand it. It shouldn't be a surprising thing that people who were in the churches had engaged in all of these things. Why? Because that was the society that they lived in. That was the culture that everybody said, if you want to really live life, this is how you find it. You know you're not finding it where you are. Do all these things and you can really live. And, and so, so they tried them. What it was, was this cross-cultural, uh, archetypical pursuit of the good life. Trying to find some meaning in this life. I went on to the website <clears throat> to find out if every language had some idiom for the good life. And you know they do. I, I pulled out a bunch of them that, just to say, La Belle Vie in French. La Vida Buena in Spanish. I knew Das Gute Leben in German. I, I found it in Armenian and, and Mandarin, but I'm not even going to try it. I tried it last night and it was, it was, it was embarrassing to try all I, all I want you, Albert would have tried it. Yeah, you, well, Albert would have tried it. All I want you to know is that wherever you go, this is a human search. Uh, you know, brothers and sisters, I want us to have an empathy for people who have not come to Jesus and found him as, the, as their cornerstone for what is happening, even if they pursue a lifestyle that is just, you, you know it's not going to work. Because it's people looking for life looking for something that they're not finding. I, when I think of trying to put myself into the place of people who lived in ancient Turkey, I can almost imagine it being something like this. In a really, really tough week when people couldn't get out of their place of life, I can imagine two people going home and one of them saying to the other, wow, what a rotten week this has been, Marcus. Have you ever had a worse week at work? Our boss is just such a oh, taskmaster. Hey, what are you doing Friday night? Did you hear there's an unlimited bar over at the Dionysius Temple this week? And they're bringing in the most beautiful women from Rome. I got two free passes. I'll come pick you up. Just to say no. Everybody would have said you were a fool. You know, going to these savage gladiator games or going into these temples of prostitution, 
is what fathers and their sons would do when the son had that rite of passage from boyhood to manhood. Aha, at last, now you can really live. You see, it's just the way people thought about living. But it never satisfied. It broke up marriages and relationships and families. Having pleasure one time, the next time it had to be bigger and better. It never satisfied. And Christians had come to Jesus and the very thing they've been made for is now at the heart of their lives. Now they no longer had to pursue life over there. They had found it in Jesus. So now, as he says, you don't have, you, you've done away with that. Verse 1. You put that to death because you know it didn't work anyway. Now we can pursue the will of God. So Christians had made a commitment to living a different way of life. And they were receiving all sorts of scorn. You can imagine it, can't you? From their, from their fellow students, from their families, from the people in the communities at work. Do you remember a few weeks ago, uh, I put together a list of different ways that followers of Jesus in the first century or two uh, tried to set themselves apart from the rest of the world. And one of them was this matter of entertainment. Uh, I put it this way. They, they refused to go to the bloodthirsty entertainment vehicles like the gladiatorial competition. But because of that, they were called antisocial. Now, let me, it's all rooted in what you and I believe. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, the all-powerful God who created the world made us in His image and made us to have Him at the center of our lives. When everything was good, Genesis 2, read it. People walked and talked with God. And when that relationship with God was right then all other relationships were right. People didn't have to be God. And they didn't have to find ultimate pleasure in just anything in this world. But you know what happened in Genesis 3? People walked away from God. But in walking away from God, that relationship for which we were made to know God was broken and that affected every other human relationship. So people away from God, all people in every culture, are on a search for the good life again trying to find it in something that can never provide it. I thought we could have a song. They're looking for life in all the wrong places. <laughs> and those places just won't work. And then when we don't participate in, in, in the flood of culture, the way that everybody else is living, we will be people who feel like aliens and strangers in this world. That's what First Peter is all about. Don't be surprised when you find it. And verse 4 of chapter 4 is so insightful. They, the rest of the world, they think it's strange. If that's where real living is, they think, is found, and you just say, I have the opportunity, but no, I found something better. They think it's strange that you do not, and this language is just so insightful plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation so they pile heap abuse upon you the idea is a flood water sweeping so quickly through that you're just swept up by it you know when you're just being swept along you hardly notice it right you hardly know you hardly notice that this is the way everybody else is living and then you come to jesus and and he says no this is how you're supposed to live now let me ask do you, this spoke to first century Turkey, do you think it says anything to, to 2010 Southern California? Are there ways that the culture just sweeps people along and says this is where you really find life, that we as followers of Jesus can be just swept along by it 
Do you think it says anything to us? Or should I just skip on hearing? Sometimes when culture is telling us this is what is good and this is what is fun, we, we don't even, we're blind to it. We don't even see how we're being caught up in the whole thing. I've tried to think of illustrations that just help us to see it. I think of the many university students who go through such challenging times at times like midterms and then maybe on a Tuesday or Wednesday they're sitting at lunch with all of their friends in the fraternity and they say, what a hard week this has been. Hey, but you know, at our frat house, we're having our biggest party of the year on Friday and the best sorority is coming. And Jim's older brother just got a promotion to becoming a lead partner in his law firm and he is funding all the booze. I'll come get you at nine. Can you imagine how hard it is to say, oh, I'm going to an InterVarsity Bible study. (laughs) What a fool, they would think. They'll heap abuse. Do you see how, how relevant this is? I've thought about in every part of our lives there are things that sweep us that we can hardly see. I I thought about Bell City and what we've been reading the last couple of weeks. Have you followed that? And trying not just to be negative, but to to try to feel what would lead to to city officials getting into a way of life that their salaries are so exorbitantly huge. I, I imagine that something like this happened, that a whole period of time where there's been no accountability and they were elected, and we're trying to serve. I heard that from many of them. We've really been trying to serve well. But then when it comes out, when those who are not in that flood of thinking, that way of pattern of thinking, look at it from the outside and see a city manager in a, a not very affluent community receiving $800,000 and city officials who are just very much part-time getting six-figure incomes, everybody looks at it says, that's wrong. But I am sure that if you and I were in the midst of it being carried along, we may not even see it. It's what I think has happened with corporate America, with so many of the CEOs and boards just being swept along. That's what everybody else is doing. I I think it happened in the sports world. Um, Being in Chicago back a few years ago when we had that big uh, competition with Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire, the home run record they were going after. Baseball, people who are not baseball fans, you don't remember this. The rest of us, it was big. Front page all the times of the Sun Times in Chicago and the Chicago Tribune. Sammy Sosa, the Cub, and Mark McGuire with the Cardinals going after this, this, um, this record, Babe Ruth's and Roger Maris's home run record, 58, 59, 60, and then they pass it, and we're headed towards 70. Front page, can't you imagine that the other baseball players who weren't getting as much money and weren't getting the front page said, steroids. They have better steroids than I do. It's just a way of thinking. If you follow now the baseball players who got caught up in that, they were swept up into it. You get swept into it thinking you'll find life there. But I'm just going to tell you, as what has happened with political leaders who were caught up and then caught, uh, CEOs and boards caught up and then caught, celebrities whose lives are being crushed because where they thought they'd find life have been demonstrated. That's not where life is to be found. 
do not live your life anymore now that you have come to Jesus for those desires. Live for the will of God. Verse 2. Uh, but that choice to live for God in the midst of those tough times, in the midst of that mockery that sometimes you get, though it brings an inner shalom, because that's what we were made for, and though it brings a future promise of good things, also so many times brings abuse, scoffing from the world. So how do we live? Well, you should come to church and say, Pastor Greg, teach me what is true. <laughs> teach me what God has done so that I will know how he would have me to live. And that's what Peter does. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... When you go into the world, you can arm yourself with the perspective that he had. What is he getting at? He's pulling us back. Therefore, it's therefore because it goes all the way back to chapter 3, verse 17. Remember that Jesus came into this world and he suffered for doing good. So when you go into this world, you need to have that same way of thinking. That, that if you're suffering for God, there's no indignity, no shame. No shame in that. So if everybody's mocking you, there's really no shame if the Lord of the universe experienced it. And number two, God is still in control. He brings great things out of faithfulness to living for Him. What is that? Verses 18 through 22, one of the most difficult places in the Bible. Someday I'll come back to it and really dig into it. I think I need to do it in a Sunday school class rather than from the pulpit. But I'll just summarize what he says. Jesus suffered on the cross. What good did that bring? Verse 18. It brought you and me to God. You and I couldn't come to God if Jesus hadn't suffered. So we should already say there's value in suffering, right? It brought you and me to God. It gave us the opportunity for eternal life. Number two, it declared God's victory over everything that is evil. That's what verses 19 through 21, that tough text about these uh, beings in the days of Noah who rebelled. People read that and, and just get bogged down by it. I'll, I'll just tell you at least what it's about and someday we'll come back to it. In the ancient world, at least the way I read this, they look back at times in which people had rebelled against God and the ultimate rebellion against God, according to much of the Jewish literature, like the book of First Enoch, which I doubt that many of us have read the past week or so, like the book of First Enoch, tells us that the time that they looked at as the ultimate evil and rebellion against God was this Genesis 6 time when the spirits rebelled against God, well, when Jesus went to the cross and bore all the sins of the world and defeated sin and death by a resurrection, he, and the word that he uses, proclaimed God's victory over everything that is evil, even over those evil beings that rebelled. That God is greater than evil. God will triumph. So if you're experiencing evil in this world and you belong to God, you're on the right side. That's what he says. And then thirdly, the suffering of Jesus is going to end in great, great triumph for him as well. It will lead to our salvation, verse 21, but also for Jesus, he will go into heaven. And he's now at God's right hand, now with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. And what that means for you and me is 
that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For at the right hand of God is the one who gave his life for us and defeated sin by a resurrection, so we have nothing in this world to fear. Therefore, if you go through some tough times, you need to have this attitude, this way of thinking. The tough times are, are no indignities. And that God is in control. And that if we're going to be faithful to His will, verse 2, we are going to see the victory of God. I can hear in verses 5 and 6, I just have to look at that for a moment, the Christians saying, Peter, I know that's right. But you know, some of our brothers and sisters in our church, they were pursuing the will of God and they gave up all these things from culture and then they died what good was the gospel for them? And that's what verses 5 and 6 is all about. This life is not all there is. This physical life and its death that comes to all has been swallowed up in a victory. Do you remember how Peter began? You and I, followers of Jesus, we have been given a new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that nothing in this world can take away. Um, and it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So now he says the reason why the gospel was preached to people who then died is that this isn't all there is. And someday all of us will stand before God. And I'll tell you, when they are judged, those who are faithful to God, they're going to be in good standing. And those who are not will have to face the judgment of God. So the message is this. The attitude that we have is that when the difficulties come, we look back to what we believe. See, we need to know that. If we really believe that Jesus, the one through whom the world was made, came into this world and chose intentionally to suffer on the cross bearing our sins and brought great victory out of it, then when we face difficult times, even in the midst of us seeking to be faithful to God, let's have this attitude that God's going to bring something beautiful out of it. I, just, I tried to think of an illustration. I, I can't find a good one, so I'll use the best one I could come up with. Uh, I grew up in West Virginia, and uh, my dad, when I was young, taught me how to ride a bicycle, but there are no flat places to ride bicycles in West Virginia. So you had to learn riding up and down hills. That's hard, just, just to let you know. It's easier to learn to ride on flat places. And outside our home, in my first 12 years, I lived in a place called Beckley, West Virginia, on Maxwell Hill, and it was a hill. For me to learn to ride that bicycle, I had to go up this, this incline that was kind of remarkable. But as a boy, I did it over and over again. You know, you'd ride the bike and you'd put all of your weight on one pedal and the bike would be shaking and your leg would be hurting and your back would hurt. And you'd put it on the other, you know what I'm talking about, all the weight on the other one. And you'd go up to the top of the hill and you would ache. And I did it over and over again. Why? Is your pastor a masochist? Do I just want to give pain to myself? No, I didn't even know this. Doing it made me strong. But the real reason was I knew that the top of the hill was right there. I knew right. And when I got to the top of the hill, it was going to be one fantastic ride down the other side. It was worth it. In the light of something that was real. And that's what we declare to you today. That Jesus died 
in history, the righteous for the unrighteous. No indignity then in suffering. No indignity if we are mocked for living for God. The death of Christ brought about the greatest triumph of God, the salvation of our souls, triumph over all that is evil, and the exaltation of Christ. Armed with that, stay away from the culture, floods, and live for the will of God. Which brings me to communion, and I'm going to be asking Pastor Albert to come and lead us in our communion service. As Albert, as you get ready to come, um, I have three questions that I'm going to want you to ask as we receive the elements. Number one, I'm going to ask, as the book of 1 Peter always does, make sure that you have come to Jesus. We're going to be remembering Jesus. Is he the Savior of your soul and the Lord of your life? So as you remember who he is, the first question to ask is, have I truly come to him and made him the very cornerstone of my life? Second question, though, in the light of this, I want you to wrestle with this. Can you see ways that you are being swept along by the flood of culture? Are there things you've given into because everybody else is doing it, and it's made you know that this is something that doesn't please God. Or perhaps you just say, I don't know, what, I've, I've never felt like an alien and a stranger in this world. What on earth is Peter talking about? Well, it may be. You don't feel like an alien and a stranger because you're living the same way everybody in the world is living. The Bible's pretty clear that when we follow the will of God, there will be things in our lives that the rest of the world will look at and say, that's strange. And if there's nothing about our lives that is different from the world, it may be that we need to come back to God and say, Father, am I truly living for you? Pray that he will open your eyes to that. Then a third question that Pastor Jeff Leo and Pastor Albert really encouraged me to bring to us all is this. Will you even pray the prayer that people like Peter and Paul would pray? that if you've never seen a place where your life is so distinctive from the world and the cultural around that it, it made you feel like an alien, will you pray that God would bring you to a place this week where you have to make a decision? Will I live for God or live as culture dictates? So that in making that decision for God, you indeed will feel like an alien, an exile, and a stranger. I thought, I want to pray that for Albert and Jeff more than I want to pray it for myself. But it's clear to me the greatest work of God comes when you and I are faithful in the midst of tough times. And to convince us of that, we're going to take time even now to remember the cross.